The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And let's take our time and adjust the body. Notice the effect of sitting still and cultivating this reflection on impermanence which is really, as I mentioned in the instructions, just a reflection on the way it is. And this changing nature, it isn't something that we discover, that isn't true until we discover it, but like when the Buddha gives us a teaching, like the teaching that everything is in motion, everything is changing, in constant, not fixed, He's meaning that, you know, the pointing out instruction isn't that when you see deeply, then you'll you'll realize it, but that it's already this way, even when we're not practicing, even when we don't care, or we're totally identified with things being permanent. They've never been permanent, never been constant, always have been inconstant. And this is really helpful because um, yeah, it just, there's a tendency, of course, to imagine that impermanence is some kind of monster that is going to annihilate us. And, you know, we have, we have a lot of problems with death and change and loss. These things are often very scary when viewed, when understood from a personal point of view the loss of something. So this is, uh, you know, we hear this a lot about our Dharma practice, this path of awakening, that it works best when we have the privilege to feel relatively safe in life. And we all know this, like when we do feel those moments where we feel relatively safe, curiosity is very natural. When those of you who've raised children or have spent time with children know this. When children don't feel safe, they're not very curious. They're not that interested in exploration, playing the edges, checking things out. But after a while, when they've been held and loved and conditions have been nice for them, then children generally, if they haven't been traumatized and abused, Children generally express a lot of curiosity. They might want to keep their parent or their caregiver in earshot, but little by little they're willing to go further and further away in their exploration of life. And this is true on our spiritual path. And that's why there is this inevitable dance that we have to gain skill with. You know, there are times in our life where our spiritual practice is learning how to find safety and comfort and how to soothe and how to ground. And there are other times in our spiritual practice when we're, in a sense, taking, um, sort of launching ourselves. We feel safe enough. And so we're willing to go into unknown territory. And of course, 
more than anything that we imagine is out there as unknown territory. The biggest unknown territory is sort of the exploration of our own heart. This subjective experience right here. We're so busy dealing with external details of living that most of us have been, most of our internal territory, being a sensitive, feeling human being, just has remained unexplored. And this is where we find the truth of impermanence. It isn't, I mean, we can use, you know, how weather changes, how days change. But it's really the what I mentioned two weeks ago in the talk, the this insight that the Buddha so highly revered in his teaching, the seeing, the momentariness of experience, how a moment of experience arises and then passes away. And to see this clearly enough, deeply enough, really changes how the mind relates to everything. It changes who we are. When we live with this idea that things are permanent, I'm Mark as an entity, is a permanent entity, this table, this moment, this situation on the planet, this relationship I have with my partner, when we keep imagining or overemphasizing the permanence that things are fixed or settled or set, then it really changes how we relate. It's like all of our defensiveness, all our neurotic resistance to change and to loss, all the fear, all arises because of that overemphasis on things being permanent. It's like a, we don't really know who we would be, how we would relate, how would we show up in the world if we had integrated, if we lived in a more connected way with the truth of change, that everything is in motion. There is no static fixed point anywhere to be found. There's just flow. And again, this isn't um, somewhere else. This is right here. It's always been here. So much of our ongoing tightness and stress and patterns of disconnection, being numb, feeling apart and separate, are the inevitable result of being in conflict with reality, which is flow, which is change. And yet the mind, the emotional mind, or that's not the right way to say it, the kind of self-centered, the pattern of self-centeredness is very, has become very dependent on its ideas, its constructed ideas of permanence, of things being set and fixed and dependable and reliable because they're fixed and set and permanent. And you see, it really skews how the heart looks for refuge, for safety. From a practice point of view, this path of awakening point of view, safety comes by coming into alignment with reality and learning to normalizing and learning to relax with change, learning to see both the 
you know, I don't know, pros and cons, but just the lived reality of being a human being in this unfixed world that we inhabit internally, externally. But when we're deluded, when we imagine that something fixed or permanent is a worthy refuge, then we struggle all life long seeking a refuge that can never be what we imagine it can be. We seek that refuge of some kind of permanence in our relationship. Nothing undermines intimate relationships or partnerships, friendships, than demanding, then internally demanding something in that from that relationship that is set and permanent. It really undermines it. Same thing I'm guessing with those of you who raise children or have pets. If we have pets, if we expect something permanent and lasting from that relationship, we're going to be disappointed and frustrated and we'll feel like life has betrayed us. And unfortunately, a lot of those experiences don't lead to curiosity. They lead instead to a kind of resentment, maybe swinging all the way over into wanting to give up on life because it hasn't given us that permanence, that safety that we want from experience because it changed. One thing we can understand, you know, because our perspective is always in motion too, the view, the perspectives that we live with, and sometimes our perspectives are what we might call very self-centered, and there are other moments, right, even today, other moments when our view or perspectives have been very more open and spacious, you could even use the word universal, you know, we're just seeing and relating to the moment from the big spacious, open point of view. People who study history, this is one way to sort of loosen the screws of our more narrow fixed views, is to see the cycles of history, of exploitation and oppression and revolution and positive change and negative change and one thing after another or any kind of uh, observation of nature will remind us that things are still changing. You know, it's so interesting, like when we study history, we see the change, but we don't necessarily have that reflection that this is a very dynamic moment too, that anything can happen, that things are in process. Or Sylvia Borstein says, you know, we're always writing the next chapter. Past chapters have been written, you know, things were the way that they were. But this chapter is in process. And how we are relating right now, how we're showing up, and in particular, how we're understanding really matters. And that's really where this insight into impermanence comes in. It, it, it really affects how we view, how we relate to the moment. As I was mentioning when we have a personal point of view of, uh, in the sense of a permanent self, then that permanent self is really dependent on permanent ground. I want safety in that permanent way. And I feel threatened when I'm reminded 
by how are reminded that things are so ephemeral, unreliable, and ungovernable. But when we have that wider, deeper, more spacious, that perspective that's grounded in reality of things coming and going, when there's birth, there's death. <clears throat> when there's a rising, there's passing. And we really have studied our own mind, our own experience, and we see, like this is one of the things that our medi <clears throat> daily meditation practice really teaches us. Because physical pain, for example, just as an example, but it could be emotional pain, could be emotional joy, but just using the example of physical pain, you know, we're sitting, feeling pretty comfortable, and then five minutes in, there's some pain in the knee, let's say. And uh, we can, from that very personal point of view, the personal point of view that wants something set, it can feel like a real threat. I need to be comfortable. That knee pain is a real threat to my need to be comfortable. And it can set in motion all kinds of ways of struggling with that knee pain. Blaming somebody or some, blaming even ourselves for the knee pain. <clears throat> Moving, hoping that that will fix it. Fantasizing about some yoga regimen that's going to transform my knee so I won't have any more knee pain. So we can get into any number of obsessive, tight thinkings all of which are just more layers of suffering, more layers of tightness, doesn't really address what's going on. Or we can contemplate the knee pain and contemplate our not liking the knee pain as for what it is. It's an experience that's arisen, manifesting. It's like this now, but is still in motion, still in process, changing. It won't always be this way. <clears throat> it's a very interesting thing to do for those of you who are feeling quite charged about the political, environmental, <clears throat> social scene that we're in the middle of here. With the <clears throat> reckoning around racial injustice and the environmental crisis and the pandemic <clears throat> political crisis, all these things, of course, intermixing with each other. And uh, it's so easy, you know, to feel threatened by change, what we feel like is coming at us. But it also means that things, that anything can happen. And this is always the thing to keep in mind when our minds are constructing really negative or scary stories. We're basically scaring ourselves <clears throat> because the attention is really orienting around the difficulties or the negative possibilities. But when things, when we understand that things are changing, that really opens it all up. Yeah, we could all die, you know, or whatever, or something beautiful can be born. And the truth is we don't really know. And the more we reflect on it, we realize all we have is our participation, our willingness to show up, our willingness to participate 
in this very dynamic unfolding within my own heart and mind, within every concentric circle that I'm part of, including the biggest circle, which is everything, the whole universe. <clears throat> so it, it, it sort of uh, sends that liberating flavor in understanding that everything is in motion and is affected by how we show up, how we participate. And so we're not denying that things can go south, that things can go bad. But we're also keeping open to the possibility that beauty and healing and justice and so many of those things that make our hearts sing and bring help us feel um, what we might call hopeful. But those are also possible. Everything's possible. And this is, this is what we learn by <clears throat> studying the reality of impermanence, that simple, straightforward reality that when I open to my life, whether it's a formal sitting time or just as I'm doing my day, when I open with some clarity and some sustained present moment awareness, what I actually notice is physicality in motion the flow of seeing and hearing and touching, smelling and tasting, and the flow of mentality, the thoughts and emotions and mental images flowing on and on and on. Even the meaning we construct, which can feel so permanent, like if we have an opinion <clears throat> excuse me, about somebody, and we're pretty sure about that opinion, this person is this way, just just observe that certainty, that conviction, that coming together of this idea of who that person is, and just observe with no no um, agenda, but to see the nature of that thought, that conclusion, for what it actually is. And we'll see that those convictions, those ideas, are so much more ephemeral than we superficially imagine that they are, who we think we are, who we think our partners are, who we think political leaders are, what we think the state of the world is. And this is really useful, you know, where we, we start to loosen any dependence on consistency. Well, I thought this way yesterday, so I, to do justice to my permanent self, I have to think this way, I have to construct meaning this way today, just to be consistent with how I've thought, how I've constructed meaning before. It's such a relief not to feel tied and, and to imagine and, you know, a creative imagining to let it arise fresh right now. Maybe it's like we thought yesterday, or maybe not. Maybe it's completely in a, you know, different, different way of imagining the way it is, and then it really creates so many more avenues for how we show up, how we respond. There's a lot more freshness because the heart, over time, gradually, is less and less dependent on maintaining an allegiance to some fixed idea of who I am, who I think you are, what I think the situation in the world is. And there's so much more energy to engage and to, um, yeah, to understand the 
the way to be right in the middle of this very alive and messy and suffering and beautiful world without feeling uh, the squeeze of the heart, but actually feeling enlivened and liberated because there is a way to participate which is full and free and alive and really defined by what we might call love, this wise love. That freedom isn't about a permanent me having a permanent safe refuge, but refuge really is this all-out participation and exposure and generous engagement with our lives. It doesn't mean that everybody becomes an activist, right? That engagement, that very alive engagement might be sitting on your chair and knitting, right? There's really no right or wrong way to imagine. What's really important is that the heart is dropping its allegiance, right? its idea of refuge, of salvation, in any way that depends on things being fixed or permanent. Because that's always going to have the existential flavor of separation. Anytime my mind is looking to that cabin, that perfect cabin, or that perfect relationship with my partner, or that, per, you know, people liking me a particular way, or my body being a particular way. Anytime I set my salvation, my refuge, as something that I can count on, then we create a demon, right? The demon is, uh, change then becomes the demon. Impermanence, the unreliable nature, becomes a monster to us because it's threatening my refuge. We can't count on anything except one thing. We can count on nature being the way it is. We can count on everything always being in motion. And that there's a way to give ourselves to that. And this is the basic, this is really the essence of what the Buddha taught, right? He, in so many ways, for those 45 years of wandering in northern India, what is now northern India, you know, the Buddha taught about the, the great value of stabilizing present moment awareness so that more and more during the day and in our formal practice times, meditation times, but really all day long is the ideal, we have this stable and continuous intimacy with the way it is, right? Because we've trained that mental muscle that knows how to connect and sustain and not get thrown off by its preferences. As a human being, we're always going to have preferences, likes and dislikes, but we don't, as a human being, need to be confused by our likes and dislikes. So that that's really the requirement to have that that deep, deep valuing of present moment awareness, being intimate, being real with what's coming and going in our hearts, in our thinking minds, in our worlds, right? So first and foremost, the Buddha emphasizes the very important need to stabilize present moment awareness. 
And then he gives some pointing out instructions, like with that stability of awareness, you might want to keep in mind the reality of impermanence, that things are changing. There is this flow of physical activity, the five physical senses. There is this flow of mental activity. Every relationship we're in is a flow. It's a dance. It doesn't end. You know, we might casually say, this is how my relationship with my pet is going, or this is how my relationship with the world is going. But we should never imagine that it's done, or it's that way in any sort of permanent way. Like I said earlier, that wonderful little teaching from Sylvia Borstein, you know, we're always writing the next chapter. It's in process. doesn't matter how many so-called chapters have been finished. Reality right now is in process, and how we show up, how we relate. And together, these teachings really um, are all about what the Buddha calls the three underlying universal characteristics of the way it is, Dhamma. And this is something from the Buddhist text. Whether awakened ones appear or not, right? whether we're awake, whether we're wise in a moment or not, whether there are Buddhas or not, there remains this element, the structure of things, this underlying reality, this certainty in things. All formations, all sankaras, right? All formations are impermanent, inconstant, unreliable. All formations are unsatisfactory, they're stressful. All things are impersonal, not self. And so this isn't a philosophy to believe in. These are just helpful pointing out instructions. So when we do stabilize present moment awareness, sometimes stronger, sometimes weaker, but when we value that present moment, the continuity of present moment awareness, then we have this gift, these pointing out instructions. Things are unreliable, they're changing, they're inconstant. My subjective experience is always the flow of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. Always the flow of thinking, imagining, you know, emoting, seeing in terms of mental imagery. These rivers, that's what make up our lives. There's knowing, knowing these rivers. Superficially, we tend to notice the river as a something, as a permanent something. But with practice, we can align with the changing nature of our experiencing. We shouldn't even say the word experience. We should always, you know, it doesn't in English sound so right, but always talk about experiencing. It wasn't an experience, it's an experiencing. It's a movement. It wasn't a thing. And so in that way, there aren't really nouns. There's just this activity of life. And we're, you know, the whole point of the path is to find a beautiful, intimate composure with the truth of impermanence, with the truth of things being ungovernable and unreliable. So then what naturally arises in our mind is there is no refuge in things. 
and wealth and health and love in that sort of romantic sense, these are not refuge. There's only refuge in aligning in that generous aligning with life, that generous participation or dance with our lives, not holding back, not obsessively looking for solid ground, but just doing what we can in this moment through participation. And so in this way, nature, when we pay attention to the nature of things, the nature of change, the nature that this moment, every moment is ungovernable, unreliable, then it teaches us what's a refuge because we get, we'll notice more clearly how we get burnt, that squeeze, that painful squeeze whenever we seek permanence in something or safety in something because we can, we imagine it being permanent. I've been having trouble with my car uh, now for a while, for over a year. And so I imagine getting a new car, a new used car, is somehow going to give me some safety, some reliability that will make me happy. Now, I probably will need to, <laughs> certainly eventually need to get a new used car, but at any time I imagine that that activity is going to be a re some kind of salvation for me, actual happiness that I can count on, well, that's a setup. Because at some point, assuming I get a new used car, you know, that new used car will reveal its nature, which is it's not reliable. You know, it will get a dent, it will get a scratch, it will get old, it will have an accident, or I'll have an accident, and the car will be harmed in some way or we'll start having problems. It's just going to be what it's going to be, but it won't really take care of me in any way that I can count on. So we still have to do these things of fall in love or get a car or make a commitment to try to make something happen in the world. But we don't have to imagine that that participation is about getting something permanent we can learn and, and let the participation be our liberation, that full, loving, compassionate, fearless, generous participation. That's what we get to do in life. And I was reading this interview, the new uh, um, head of that center for Healthy Minds that Richie Davidson founded at the University of Wisconsin-Madison a while back. It's quite an amazing place where they've done so much interesting um, neuroscience study, and uh, including with a lot of meditators and MRIs. But they're really trying to take it out into the world through the Center for Healthy Minds, working in uh, educational, you know, like schools and work sites. And anyway, uh, this person, this woman who's now the head, interviewed Lama Rod Owen, some of you know, really wonderful, powerful teacher in our wider, wider Buddhist community here in the United States. Uh, he teaches in the Zen tradition. And in this interview, you know, he's just talking about uh, th these ideas of 
permanence and how it relates maybe to just patriarchy and whiteness, white supremacy, and just like locking things in, that sort of safety. And when we start to look and open and acknowledge what's really moving here, well, it's scary. But it also can be quite healing. And then in this uh, interview, he says, a large part of American culture and white supremacy is about comfort. And here's the part that I think might be useful for us. To decenter comfort and to recenter discomfort intentionally, right? so we're doing it on purpose, is going to feel completely unnatural. It requires compassion. It requires understanding why we overconsume. It requires awakening. It seems to me that we are moving away from patriarchies to matriarchies, or you might say from individualism to more collective understanding. And he goes on writing or saying, we're seeing the emergence of women, gender, non-conforming people, trans folks as leaders in the environmental climate and anti-racist movements all across America. It's restoring balance after centuries of patriarchy and that is beautiful. So it's a good question, you know, as we go forward this next week, and we'll come back to this topic of impermanence and for a few more weeks. But, you know, just to look at our addictions to comfort and to things being set, like in terms of our political ideas and our political participation, just look for that addiction to certainty. And see if you can open to things being uncertain and open and decentering the need for comfort and really letting discomfort be our teacher. Right? And like it it may be uncomfortable, but it might have a liberating feeling not to be dependent on comfort. It may be the choice between like what we imagine comfort is, but the numbness and deadness that goes with it, and experimenting with discomfort and starting to feel more and more alive. And that might be, you know, that comfort having power over our situation, you know, that domination as a way to create safety, giving up on domination and giving up on control and giving up on comfort might actually, and this is for each of us to test out, to experiment with, might actually lead to something that's much more trustworthy than seeking control and domination and comfort over our bodies, over our hearts and minds, over our communities, Um, one of the things uh, one of my teachers, uh, Joseph Goldstein, used to say, um, anything can happen anytime. And just, it's interesting just to be honest with ourselves, like what does our mind conjure up when we re realize that anything can happen anytime? Because that's not, not all bad, that anything can happen anytime. That also means that real transformation, deep healing can happen. Even the kind of healing we might think cannot happen because it's too well protected, too much, too intense, 
people aren't willing to feel what would need to be felt for that healing to happen. Well, maybe anything can happen anytime. And maybe that really starts to ventilate our lives and our communities when we realize that anything can happen anytime and that we're, we don't have to hold. And I feel this is especially useful for me these days because, you know, there's a lot there's a lot moving these days and a lot to be frightened by and concerned by and heartbroken by, you know, just the, the suffering, seemingly needless suffering and needless oppression and needless fear and need, needless judgment and hatred that's uh, moving these days. And it's easy for my mind, and maybe it's true for others too, it's very easy for my mind to construct an idea of hopelessness as a permanent entity, like, oh yeah, we're totally screwed, or something like that, some version of that. So this kind of teaching on impermanence and really trusting, learning to trust more and more how open and fluid how with birth or with death there's birth, that life, the very nature of life is this sort of bursting forward of what's new and fresh. And sometimes what's new and fresh is horrific, like the fires in California and Oregon right now, or other, you know, sort of terrible movements in our communities. And sometimes what's bursting forth is quite beautiful. And our job as a practitioner is to learn how to be open to both and not cling to any part of the movement, but just learn to be right in the dance. I remember once, uh, I used to live on the East Coast a long time ago in the 80s, 70s and 80s, and um, used to go swimming in Assateague Island, a national park uh, not too far from Washington, D.C., and uh, I just remember spending a lot of time in the surf and just the undulating, bubbly nature of just sort of treading water with all that activity. And you know how it is, we can sort of fight it or want to be in control, but there's a way of trusting the buoyancy and trusting that uh, you don't have to struggle. And it is so delightful, these little teachers that we've had in our lives about how to really be in our relationships, in our messy world, in our aching bodies, and things with things the way they are. So I hope these teachings have been useful and we'll keep coming back. I'll ask uh, Gabe Keller Flores to put a short teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, this wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk, um, on the in the weekly email and up on our blog, Long Live Impermanence. You can even Google it if you don't want to wait. Long Live Impermanence by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's just a two-page article and has beautiful, um, heartfelt riff on opening to impermanence. Wishing you well. Hope to connect with you down the road and wishing you all and myself safety and love. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.